In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. This is the I Spy Radio Show. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Keeping an eye on big government. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. And now, here is your host, Mark Anderson. All men are created equal. That's what America used to be about. America used to be about equal treatment. It used to be about equal opportunity. America used to be about equality under the law. We all know our justice system is not blind. We used to think so, but since Obama took office, the justice system became a just-us system where only certain people, the insiders and others aligned with the deep state, are treated fairly, mainly through selective non-prosecution. We especially saw selective prosecution with the rise of the George Soros District Attorney Project. This is where he poured money by the bucketful into district attorney races around the country, Races which generally do not get a lot of money, so when he dumps 10 times the usual amount into a race, guess who is likely to win? It was about getting far-left prosecutors in there who would attack their political enemies while simultaneously opting not to charge the right kind of people. Kim Gardner in Missouri is a prime example of this. She successfully managed to prosecute the newly elected governor and got him to resign, despite not even having the evidence she claimed to have and multiple lies by her investigators. But the charges against him were enough to open other doors, which opened other questions, which led to too much pressure, and he resigned. Soros pursued this route because he and the far left knew that changing laws or adding new ones through legislatures was too difficult, probably because the laws and policies they wanted just weren't popular. Or the laws they wanted to do away with were popular, you know, like charging criminals, rapists, and violent offenders. But they figured out you didn't need laws. You needed people in charge of the laws who were firmly on your side who would selectively not apply the laws. That way, when your people were rioting and looting, you just refused to prosecute them. The same mentality of the right people has also bled into business with DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which means the racist left who claim they're not racist but manage to see race in literally everything to the point where if you dare claim that you're not a racist, that you don't see skin color, you see people, well, you're the worst kind of racist. We've got cases against two high-profile public personas we're going to look at today, President Trump and Hunter Biden. The differences are pretty stark. With Trump, it is a case of pull out all the stops to get him and a willingness to do so by judges, lawyers, Department of Justice, and government officials, including the FBI and CIA, to take him down at all costs, even at the cost to our justice system where one person can be targeted and treated very differently than anyone else. On the other side, Hunter is also treated very differently, but with kid gloves. There's a reluctance by judges and attorneys and government officials to go anywhere near him. With Hunter, and by extension Joe Biden, there is a tremendous amount of evidence. Bank transfers, bribes, suspicious activity, shell companies, emails, phone calls, text messages, eyewitnesses and whistleblowers his own pictures on his own laptop. But despite all of that, it has been a massive uphill battle to get charges filed against him, years to do so. On the other hand, there is a tremendous lack of evidence against Trump. Much of it, it seems, more belief and feelings, dislike, hatred, and hostility 
than actual evidence of wrongdoing. There could not be two more stark, contrasting examples of what is so wrong with our justice system than Donald Trump and Hunter Biden. In addition to those two, we'll also be looking at the developments with Fannie Willis. She is the prosecutor who is one of those zealous prosecutors trying her best to take down Trump at all costs, except, it turns out, it looks like she herself is corrupt. And then in the second half of the show, we'll be talking with Scott Shepard of the National Center for Public Policy Research. Thanks to the poison of DEI and inclusiveness over competence, things like bolts on airplane doors or wheels aren't getting tightened. How long before the left's racism ends up killing people just so they can pretend they're not the real racists? Joining us now is Paul Kaminar. He is a longtime fixture of the Washington, D.C. legal community, and as of 2020, he is now the lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. Paul, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Yeah, so just real quick, uh, tell us a little bit about National Legal and Policy Center. What do you guys do? Yeah, no, we're uh, based in the Washington, D.C. area. We're a nonprofit uh, public interest group. Uh, we're considered an ethics watchdog group. So uh, we file complaints uh, against members of Congress like AOC uh, and uh, people like that, uh, Senator Schumer, for violating ethics laws. We file complaints with the Federal Election Commission. Uh, we also file complaints with the IRS, where you have a lot of these nonprofit groups like Black Lives Matter ripping off donors and spending millions of dollars on mansions for their leaders. And so uh, we try to put a spotlight on that. We also have a corporate integrity project where we, as shareholders of certain companies, we attend their annual meetings and uh, go after their woke policies and try to get them to uh, change uh, their policies in that regard. Hmm. Well, it uh, sounds like a great organization, and it's um, the the website for that is I just had it here a second. And what? yeah, it's uh, nlpc.org. Yes, uh, thank you. National Legal Policy Center initials nlpc.org. Terrific. So uh, we want to have you on to get your legal analysis of the cases against President Trump and against Hunter Biden. But let's start with the rather curious case of Fannie Willis and the sudden drama surrounding her. She is uh, trying to charge Trump with election interference, but on the way to the trial, it turns out that Fannie is herself allegedly guilty of wrongdoing. It turns out that she may have hired her boyfriend, Nathan Wade, who, as I understand it, was never a prosecutor. He was a divorce lawyer. He got the job and and the next day filed for divorce, and inadvertently because of that divorce, it exposed the relationship between Fannie and Nathan. Uh, there was a fascinating interview, actually, with the wife's lawyer uh, just came out Wednesday night, and it turns out that neither she, uh, the, the wife, nor her lawyer knew anything about that relationship, uh, nor did they even know that he had the job that he did until they saw him in press reports. So what kind of and how large of a monkey wrench does this uh, development throw into the works here? Yeah, it throws a big one because one of the co-defendants in the criminal case that Trump is involved in uh, filed a motion with the court to throw out the whole criminal indictment and uh, on, alternatively to have her and her lover boy uh, thrown off the case uh, for a conflict of interest. Cause here she was uh, paying this uh, inexperienced uh, lawyer uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, yes. almost a million now, uh, to prosecute this action. And uh, they were taking this money and going on uh, trips together and, and so forth. And, and uh, the attorney for 
Nathan Wade's uh, wife, who's filed for divorce, um, has got the receipts as the have the airline tickets and so forth with uh, Fannie Willis's name on it and so on. And up until now, uh, she hasn't denied that, uh, but some, she's going to have to uh, come clean here because uh, tomorrow uh, she will be filing with the court her response to all these charges uh, in terms of, uh, I'm sorry, not tomorrow, let me make that clear, it's a week from tomorrow, uh, February 8th, uh, she'll be filing her uh, opposition to being thrown off the case. And then uh, a week after that, uh, uh, there'll be a hearing uh, February 15th where the court will decide whether she the whole case is thrown away or whether she gets bounced off the case along with her boyfriend, uh, which means uh, the case will still go on. But even if the judge doesn't do either of those things, the case uh, has now been damaged a lot uh, by this uh, soap opera that's yes. going on in the background. Yeah. So, 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 it, so it, if you it, set aside the soap opera, though, uh, real quick, we've only got about 30 seconds here with you. Sure. What, what's your analysis of this case? Does it have any legs, and, and what would happen if she wins? Oh, I mean the case just against her or the whole The, the case against case. Trump, yeah. Oh, the whole criminal case. Well, there's alleging uh, uh, interference with the Georgia election. Uh, they already have uh, three or four uh, defendants already pled guilty to that to, to get out of the case. Uh, no jail time really for their, those people like Sidney Powell and so forth. Uh, I, you know, that, it depends. You know, you've got a Georgia jury who's, of course, uh, uh, pro-Democrat. So uh, he, there might be conviction on some of the counts, but... Uh, uh, I think uh, he's got a good defense, and uh, the question is whether this trial will go before the election in 2024. So that's a big right, right. question mark. Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, we are up against the clock here. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Our All guest right. today is Paul Kaminar, lead counsel at National Legal and Policy Center. Coming up, we'll get his legal analysis of the cases against President Trump. And welcome back. We're talking with Paul Kaminar. He's the lead counsel for the National Legal and Policy Center, a conservative nonprofit that promotes ethics in public life. And uh, so, Paul, we, we talked about the Fannie Willis case there against Trump, and let's talk now about some of the other cases against him to get your legal, legal analysis of those. The most recent one that just concluded was the E. Jean Carroll case in which the jury awarded her some $83 million for defamation because Trump, who I think has claimed he never even met her and has certainly denied ever assaulting her, was successfully sued because he said mean things about her. So what's your analysis here? Uh, do you think this will be overturned? Well, uh, that's a good question. <clears throat> I, I, uh, there's two parts to this case. One is whether uh, he sexually assaulted her and whether he defamed her. And the second part is the amount of damages uh, of some $83 million or $86 million. Uh, so I, I think it's going to be difficult to to overturn the uh, uh, liability issue, whether he defamed her, uh, but there's some evidentiary things that might make him uh, prevail because they were trying to introduce some documents uh, and witnesses that the judge did not allow. Uh, the other day when he was testifying, the judge limited Donald Trump to one-word answers 
to mm. the questions that his attorney posed. Is, is that normal? So, I mean, can, can a judge normally do that? No, the judge can can limit uh, somebody's testifying to uh, if they're not answering the question directly, uh, or if they do uh, speak outside the parameters of what the question is directed to them about. And if it's a relevant question, the judge uh, there'll be an objection by the other side and say objection. And the judge will then, if he thinks it was improper, tell the jury, members of the jury, disregard those last statements by the witness, et cetera. But here, uh, they didn't even need to do that because they just told Trump, hey, you can only say one-word answers, yes, wow. no, to these questions. It's, so it's like a kangaroo a court there. in some communist country somewhere. Well, yeah, and that's just one of many kangaroo courts that are going on with him. Yeah. But uh, in terms of the damages, I think he might be able to get those whittled down because they seem to be quite excessive uh, punitive damages and so forth. So uh, we'll see what happens on that one. But well, that one is just, go ahead. Well, I was going to say the alleged assault happened decades ago. And if I remember right, New York State actually changed its statute of limitation laws to allow the original case to go through it. Am I remembering that wrong? No, that's right. They, they, uh, several states have done that where they, the statutes have expired, but then they retroactively keep them open uh, until another date that they put in the future. So anybody who has claimed they were sexually assaulted years ago, et cetera, uh, had the opportunity to come back in and, and, and make their case again. Uh, so, yeah, he denied uh, even meeting her or knowing her. She, her evidence was that after it happened, she told uh, some of her friends, so she has contemporary uh, evidence, so to speak, that bolsters her side. Trump did not show up at the liability stage of the sexual assault, uh, uh, and maybe that was a, a, a tactical mistake mm. uh, to make his defense there. But uh, nevertheless, the, uh, the, the those damages were $5 million. What's What's really costing him is the $87 million for the defamation action, and that's where I think... Well, uh, it, it, just, the, it just seems crazy the extent to which they are willing to go to, to get Trump. I mean, if you have to change the laws to let something that's decades old, that there really isn't any actual proof other than hearsay that she told somebody something, I mean, that, that just seems rather astounding. Oh. Uh, Trump is also being sued by Letitia James, who ran her campaign on finding something to get President Trump with. Right. Uh, she's alleging financial fraud that he inflated his wealth to get loans, except the banks do their own due diligence and saw nothing wrong. And the loans were all paid back anyway with interest. So what's your analysis of that case? Yeah, that, that really is uh, an unbelievable case. Uh, uh, they're, she's trying to get Trump and the Trump organization to pay $250 million uh, for money that uh, he allegedly saved or gained because of his alleged fraudulent uh, uh, you know, business uh, sheets to the banks. But now she's up to the $370 million. And the judge in that case should be issuing an opinion uh, any minute now. I mean, it's supposed to have been, they said he wanted to get it by the end of January. So that may be coming out anytime soon. And, and there's plenty of appeals uh, available in that case. I mean, it really is. There was no, nobody harmed. The banks did their own due diligence in terms of looking at the valuation of the assets. Letitia James, you're right, when she was running for office, uh, you know, promised to go get Donald Trump. Uh, uh, it reminds me of the Soviet uh, Union under Joseph Stalin. Yeah, his, absolutely. They, yeah, his uh, told uh, his uh, 
guy who was in charge of, you know, prosecuting said, well, fine, show me the man and I'll show you the crime. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's that's where we're at now with with American jurisprudence. So another case against Trump is the classified documents case. The FBI raided Mar-a-Lago and took documents that every president until Trump was entitled to declassify and or take with them. It's being led by Jack Smith, who has charged Trump with 40 felony counts over his alleged mishandling of classified documents. So what's your legal analysis of this case? How strong is it? Yeah, well, that one's an interesting case. Uh, uh, I think it uh, depends upon whether the uh, Presidential Records Act uh, takes precedence over the other statute of the Espionage Act of 1917 that they're trying to apply to Donald Trump. Uh, so that case is uh, uh, being uh, pre-trial in terms of getting documents to the other side. Jack Smith is trying to get the judge to not allow him to turn over the evidence to the other side or just give summaries of the documents they have. So that one is one that raises some issues that raises another issue in terms of equal justice because uh, here you have Joe Biden exactly. uh, with the special counsel who had uh, classified documents uh, at his office here uh, at the uh, Penn Biden Center here yeah. in D.C. In, in his garage, yeah. Yeah, in his gar- yeah, yeah. next to his Corvette. Crazy. Uh, and, and so forth. And uh, that special counsel, we haven't heard peep out of Mm-mm. him. And he said, Mm-mm. well, I'll be coming out to report. I'll come, and, you know, so... Well, that, and the other uh, aspect uh, of that, too, yeah. is that uh, Biden was not president. He didn't have the authority to declassify those. He was vice president. Well, that, that, that's certainly correct. So it, yeah. um, can any of these cases, um, you think, could they derail his candidacy? Well, uh, the one that's a big one here is in D.C. That's the Jack Smith where they're charging him with uh, the uh, January 6th uh, election, uh, uh, the storming of the Capitol and so forth. Um, I think uh, that one's on hold because there's the issue of whether he's immune from prosecution and that decision should be coming down I would think by tomorrow, that's another one to stay tuned for. But uh, even if uh, he's found guilty on any of these or any of these counts, there's some polling that shows that he would lose some 10 points or whatever uh, by by uh, some of his voters and therefore will jeopardize his candidacy. But at the same time, he can appeal those and he's got yeah. certain grounds for appeal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, January 6th, I mean, that's just insane that people are still calling that an insurrection. It's the only unarmed insurrection that I know about in history. Right. All right, uh, let's go and take a break. We're talking with Paul Kaminar. He's the lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. Their website is nlpc.org. Up next, some legal analysis of the Hunter Biden cases. This is the I Spy Radio Show, show number 14-05. We're talking today with Paul Kaminar. He's the lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. They are a conservative nonprofit promoting ethics in public life. You can find out more about them by heading to nlpc.org, nlpc.org. And if you missed that, we'll have that in the link section on today's show page at iSpyRadio.com. Again, it's show 14-05. So let's turn to Hunter and get your legal analysis on the Hunter Biden investigation and what it means. But before we get there... I would like to read a text message that was just uncovered from Donald Trump Jr. uh, that I doubt very much people have heard about because it wasn't on any of the big media. And I'd like to get your reaction and analysis because the text sure sounds like Don Jr. was trying to shake down a client for money. 
It reads, quote, I'm sitting here with my father. I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge that you will regret not following my direction. I am sitting here waiting for the call with my father. Except that wasn't Don Jr. because if it was, you can bet it would have been the headline on every newspaper and the lead story on every news show across America for weeks. Instead, it was Hunter Biden. Matt Gates confronted the director of the FBI with that text earlier this week who refused to comment on it and the media refused to even mention it. So what's your reaction to that text? Well, that's just part of many texts and and a lot of evidence that were uh, in Hunter Biden's laptop, which, by the way, you recall uh, that uh, before the election in 2020, they Mm -hmm. said that was a Russian hoax. That laptop was not uh, Hunter Biden's. And we know that uh, uh, was a lie, that it was his uh, laptop. And and, and they knew Uh, it at the time they said that. That, that's right. And then you had these 51 uh, former national security CIA type people under Biden that, that certified, yeah, this is a hoax. And when that was now finally debunked um, and, and the truth was known, uh, you didn't see them coming out and saying, oops, we're sorry, mm-hmm. we made a mistake. We, and that was all designed to influence the election. Sure. And uh, it had that impact. Uh, but Hunter Biden uh, is, is an unbelievable story here. Uh, he was originally uh, investigated by the U.S. attorney here in Delaware, uh, David Weiss. Uh, it took him five years to do a simple tax case. Uh, everybody even uh, who are uh, not Trump supporters say, you know, you could do this in six months to a year at best to get the indictment. So while this five years was going on, they were making this sweetheart deal where they said, okay, let's let's uh, have a plea bargain. Yeah. Uh we slap you on the wrist, uh, uh, drop the gun charge, and just uh, stay clean for uh, like a year or two, and everything's fine. And the judge there, uh, thank goodness, did not have anything to do with this mm-hmm. hanky-panky, threw it out, and now— Well, well especially uh, when Hunter's yeah. defense team calls up pretending to be the prosecutors. Yeah, there was a little bit of that going on, and they tried to explain that, saying, oh, that was one of our— associates and the other firm and it was misunderstood but you know that's the least of it the main thing is now that jack smith uh i'm sorry uh david weiss was now elevated so to speak to be a special counsel because merrick garland the attorney general realized that uh uh, this uh, charade of did he have the authority to prosecute hunter Biden on the tax charges here in dc or california or did he not uh, as as David Weiss told the two IRS whistleblowers, and thank God for those whistleblowers oh, yeah. uh, uh, who 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 basically testified under oath that this was uh, the fix was in to to have this uh, not uh, you know have this sweetheart deal mm-hmm. go down, and they were told you can't look at the laptop to you IRS investigators, and you can't uh, get any absurd. information uh, to Joe Biden. So that that's ridiculous. So where are we now with that? Well. Two things. One, he was subpoenaed to testify before Congress, as we all know. He thumbed his nose at right. that press conference. Um, and then uh, his attorney and, and James Comer uh, worked out a deal saying, okay, we'll reissue the subpoena because there was some legal uh, technicality that whether the subpoena was uh, subject to being challenged because it wasn't authorized by the full House, but by the committees. I think uh, that that argument was was frivolous, but nevertheless, just to 
forestall any shenanigans in court. They said, okay, we'll issue the full subpoena, which they did. And so now we're going to be hearing from Hunter Biden uh, behind closed doors. We did hear last week from his sugar daddy or sugar brother, Kevin Morris, who uh, uh, lent or gave him, uh, depending upon uh, what uh, the the truth is, up to $5 million uh, to pay back Hunter's taxes, and he did this just before the election of yeah, 2020. Is, is that saying, typical hey, that attorneys will lend somebody $5 million to pay their back taxes? Well, uh, not, not only is it uh, not typical, uh, it's it's against the bar ethics rules. And exactly. there's a complaint uh, filed with the California bar saying that this attorney violated uh, the ethics rules by lending and giving money to a client because that raises a conflict mm-hmm. of interest. Well, so, g- getting back uh, real quick to that sweetheart deal. The speculation at the time was that it was effectively a backdoor presidential pardon to get Hunter cleared of everything and thereby blocking Congress or anyone else from coming after Joe. Is that how you took that deal? Well, uh, it could have been that way. Uh, They could still come after uh, Joe, even if they did take the deal, because Congress could say, well, that's what you pled guilty to, but that's not necessarily the facts. But speaking of a pardon, here's what's going to happen. Uh, Joe uh, Hunter Biden is now uh, charged in California with uh, uh, three or four felony counts, half dozen misdemeanor counts on tax violation. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he pled not guilty. Uh, his trial uh, should be coming up uh, sometime uh, this spring or summer. Um, I don't know if it's going to be delayed, but whatever happens. Uh, come the election day, I predict that Joe Biden will pardon his son, mm. whether he's convicted or not, because you can pardon someone who's just under uh, a criminal indictment. And uh, if Joe Biden loses the election, he's got nothing to lose to say, well, look, while I'm going out the door, I'll just pardon my son. Uh, if he wins the election, he can also say, well, what have I got to lose? I've been here for four years anyway. Uh, I'm a lame duck, so I'll pardon him anyway. So, uh, Joe Biden, I mean, Hunter Biden, if a judge is really looking at this properly uh, under the F, uh, under the sentencing guidelines, what he was charged with, he should get between one and two years minimum uh, in prison. So I can't see any kind of a plea deal that his attorney uh, here, Abby Lowe, is going to be able to negotiate where uh, the judge will not be able to give some hard prison time to Hunter Biden. and And that's why I think his saving grace will be Joe Biden will give him a pardon. Yeah, and that certainly would complicate uh, the election for sure. Right. If it happens uh, after the election, I could see that happening. But if he tries to do that before the election, boy, that could really complicate things. Unfortunately, we are against the clock. I want to thank you so much for your time. Paul Kaminar, he's the lead counsel at National Legal and Policy Center. Find out more at nlpc.org. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, great. Thank you for having me. In an article from November last year, our asset manager's liars, Stefan Padfield of the Free Enterprise Project, said the big five of corporate governance, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, ISS, and Glass-Lewis are without a doubt carrying water for the left. Now, if you don't know, these are the huge multi-trillion, yes, multi-trillion dollar hedge funds that go around, buy up huge chunks of shares in a company, force their way onto the targeted company's board of directors, and then force their belief system into that company's corporate uh, corporate governance policies. Policies like DEI, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion, and social justice, which isn't just, and the like. But is that changing? Are the woke waking up to the failure of their own policies? 
though they will, of course, never openly admit it. To talk about that, I'd like to welcome Scott Shepard back to the show. Scott is the director of the Free Enterprise Project at the National Center for Public Policy Research. The Free Enterprise Project's goal is to oppose the woke takeover of American corporate life. Scott, it is great to talk to you again. Oh, always great to be with you. Yeah, so BlackRock is perhaps the most infamous of the uh, far-left wokery advocate funds. uh, They claimed a while ago that they were going to start pulling back from ESG. But you have an article from just a couple weeks ago that said, maybe not so fast. Before we get to your article, though, what happened that BlackRock, after forcing ESG and all the other woke nonsense on other businesses that it invested in, announced it would suddenly dissolve its ESG and sustainability departments. I mean, what happened there? Why did they suddenly determine that maybe these weren't such good ideas after all? Well, there's a lot going on at BlackRock. And and by the way, they're the most infamous because Larry Fink can't keep his mouth shut. But State (laughs) Street's uh, even worse and far worse, I think. Mm -hmm. And Vanguard's pretty bad as well in non-obvious ways. But but what's going on at BlackRock is uh, that Larry Fink has recognized that we've discovered what ESG really is. It's not making extra money by just doing good that all of us can agree is good. It's pushing uh, corporations into hard left partisan positions that cost those corporations money, but that um, fit with the goals of the Biden administration, fit with the goals of the World Economic Forum, Uh, right? Political schedule decarbonization, reintroducing racism through equity theory, And so what uh, BlackRock discovered is two things. One, they discovered that their ESG-labeled funds were losing money because ESG as a concept is a guaranteed money loser. Right. Second, they discovered, and I think that that if I can pat us on the back, we uh, at the Free Enterprise Project had a lot to do with this. We started pointing out, wait a second, you offer ESG funds and non-ESG funds. But you can't stop bragging, Larry, that you use the power of all of the other people's assets, everybody who's invested with you, to force ESG goals everywhere. How is that not material misinformation and breach of your fiduciary duty, breach of, of, of the, the regulatory laws, et cetera, et cetera? Well, so he had to get rid of these funds because it was evidence every day that ESG loses money. And I think he wanted to take them away so that that obvious uh, uh, comparison, you're using non-ESG funds. You offer both, but you, regardless, you use them all to push ESG goals. Um, that obvious comparison isn't there anymore. Yeah. And he's also said that he doesn't, um, he doesn't want to talk about ESG anymore, but not because he doesn't <laughs> want to keep doing what he's been doing, but because um, we're on to him. So, mm. so that's what's going on. And I'm sorry, that was a very long response. No, that's fine. We like in-depth. Uh, but so to be clear, do you think he's one of the reasons why he's moving away from ESG is because of a potential lawsuit that, that he could be sued over, you know, using non-ESG funds to force ESG? Well, I think, I think that that's so obviously a violation of uh, disclosure requirements, honesty requirements, fiduciary duty requirements, that he ought to face a lawsuit. But my feeling is, now we're going to see what happens. We, we deal with uh, at least somewhat with all of these big five, uh, the two proxy services and the big three investment houses. BlackRock isn't closing the door to us. Uh, they, they, there's a possibility that they really mean they're going to draw back at least in part from ESG. But another explanation for absolutely every single move here is that they want to hide the fact 
that they're still going to push ESG goals. They just want to slather it in um, in t- discussions of uh, conscientious capitalism or something, and and hide it as much as possible. That's mm. the concern. So. As far as them pulling back, what makes you think that this is not genuine? I mean, are you seeing something in particular? Well, I mean, there was uh, the, the best evidence is Larry Fink was in an interview, I think, in July. And he said some garbled thing about he's ashamed of talking about ESG. And he was asked about that, and then he pulled it back. He said, but we're not going to talk about ESG anymore. We're going to talk about conscientious capitalism. And and the interviewer asked, well, what does conscientious capitalism mean? It means ESG. And then he went through and <laughs> said it meant exactly he's going to force the ESG behaviors on corporations just like before. But uh, if he says that it's conscientious, then the rest of us are just going to nod along. Sure, Larry, your partisan politics are conscientious. That's yeah. right. Yeah, it's, it's, and, it's uh, a new label know. like what they did with global warming. It's no longer global warming. It's climate change. And that way you can blame everything on climate change, not just that it's getting warmer, but it's also getting colder and therefore it's climate change. That, that sounds yep. like what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it, every well, most evidence right now is that that's what's going on. Hmm. OK, uh, let's take a break a little bit early. The next uh, couple of questions here are rather large ones and uh, just don't have time in the next 30 seconds. So uh, everyone say, well, this will have more with Scott Shepard. And also coming up, Boeing is the perfect example of DEI and other woke policies gone wrong. We'll talk about that next with Scott Shepard. Scott Shepard is a fellow at the National Center for Public Policy Research and the director of their Free Enterprise Project. The Free Enterprise Project is the original and premier opponent of the woke takeover of American corporate life. And Scott, we've been talking about BlackRock that is suddenly saying, you know, maybe these ESG and DEI policies aren't so great. But before we get into you know a clear example of that with Boeing, BlackRock and, and the other uh, big five asset managers literally have trillions of dollars between them and the, uh, apparently all lean left. It, it really begs the question, how did the left get so much money? Well, that is, that is very interesting. You know, for decades, we thought CEOs are reliable, yeah. sensible people. Yeah. They're going to run their companies to make money. They're not going to get deep into politics. And if they, if they do, they'll have enough sense to support the party that doesn't want to tax them into perdition right. or, or eat their young. Right. right? But yeah, it turns out that in, yeah, I mean, it, but it, I think that part, a lot of this shift happened after 2008 and particularly after the Zuccotti Park, hmm. you know, um, 99, 1%, you know, those those uh, 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 riots. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, peaceful protests outside <laughs> of uh, Wall Street in 2010. Yes. Yeah. And after that, they seem to have decided, well, listen, if we support uh, the left on its social and and uh, uh, environmental goals, they'll leave us alone to be rich as we want to be. Hmm. And so they, they all at once went far, far, far left. And then there are other, the left is better at pressuring people than the right. Yes. And so you've got all of these uh, um, organizations, HRC, it was pushing for gay marriage for a long time. There was a lot of support for that. And so <clears throat> uh, they pushed companies to support you know, uh, domestic partner benefits and other things, but every year they ratchet up their demands. Mm-hmm. And so at mm-hmm. this point, in order to get a good score uh, on their corporate equality index, you have to support 
absolute lunatic positions on uh, transsexuals, et cetera, et cetera. And so they've had the pressure going for 30 years. On our side, it's just been my little uh, group, my predecessors in charge, and uh, uh, fighting, fighting the fight. Not until 2019, 2020 did, did we get uh, uh, a lot of allies realizing, oh, wow, this is really serious and we yeah. have to take it on. Yeah. Well, are, are there any similar multi-trillion dollar funds on the right? I mean, that are pro-America, pro-freedom, pro-free markets? Because I can't think of any. Um, you mean investment houses? Yeah. Well, there, there, there are none of that size. Each of the, with each of the three, State Street, Vanguard, and BlackRock, the question so far uh, is how much of the left lunacy do they actively support? And even more importantly, how much are they secretly forcing behaviors in those directions behind the scenes? Yeah. Because up to this year, none of the big three has ever supported any single uh, social or environmental proposal that comes not from the left, but instead from us or from other groups uh, in the center or on the right, not a single one. And so mm. I think that's going to change this year. State attorneys general and state treasurers have made it clear that that better change. Um, but, uh, you know, it, with that kind of batting average, supporting about half of lefty proposals and 0% of center-right proposals, right. Uh, you know, the answer is sadly none of the big ones. Uh, even give the, the center of the right a look in. Hmm. Well, thanks to the poison of DEI and inclusiveness over competence, uh, we've got things like bolts on airplane doors and wheels that are suddenly flying off. Um, and Boeing, they, they, they actually proudly bragged about uh, meeting their DEI quotas. So in a startling article in the Daily Mail this week, they write that two former senior Boeing staffers have said they would not fly on the firm's killer 737 max after its latest safety fiasco and one said he'd urge his family not to set on one set foot on one either and you know this is just crazy what's happening with boeing i mean how much of you think you know like wheels and and doors falling off how much of you think that can be blamed on dei and other woke policies did they have a policy where they had to hire woke subcontractors well i don't know if they had to hire woke subcontractors but they injected race sex and orientation rather than merit yes. throughout their company. And they bragged about it. Mm-hmm. And so now they've got a situation where they're turning out terrible products. And I don't know that um, their non-merit based racist, sexist uh, hiring has contributed to that, but this can't go on and it be near misses forever. Sometime they're going to uh, screw up is going to cost yes. lives and it's going to injure people. And then there's going to be a massive lawsuit. Yes. And in the, the lawsuit, the tort suit, Boeing will have an obligation to prove that it di- wasn't negligent uh, in any of its processes. And since it says we hire on the basis of other than merit, the burden's going to be on it, on Boeing, to show that this non-merit hiring didn't contribute to um, to the accident and that it wasn't a per se negligent act to hire anybody who builds airplanes on any basis other than pure merit. Mm. And I don't, I, I can't imagine how they can possibly uh, withstand that. And, uh, and, and I think they're going to be in terrible, terrible trouble. Well, it's not like they didn't know because you guys there at the free enterprise project actually warned Boeing back in 2020 that they needed diversity of thought on its board. Uh, you guys had uh, put forward a shareholder proposal, which they rejected and, and uh, uh, resoundingly. So uh, they, they voted unanimously to reject that. Uh, the, the board did. 
And now here they are committed to diversity, to gender, race, and ethnicity. And meanwhile, their doors are falling off. So they not only ignored that warning, and as we said, they bragged about doing the opposite in their 2023 DEI report, quote, our goal was to achieve diverse interview slates for at least 90% of the manager and executive openings. We exceeded that target, resulting in 47% diverse hires at the management and, and executive levels. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't see how they can survive that in court. But I, I have a proposal for them, and we have a proposal on the ballot this year, so I'm going to get to uh, put this to the directors uh, directly at their annual meeting. Um, I've got a proposal for them. They've got uh, they hired on merit for many years, and now they're hiring according to diversity rather than merit. I, they, sh- they need to set up twin programs, right? Develop and build a new plane or, or fix up one of these disasters and set two teams uh, at the effort at the same time. One of people hi- strictly hired on the basis of merit and the other hired through their racist, sexist, orientationist um, uh, system. And get both uh, airplanes all the way through to fruition and then offer them side by side to airlines and other purchasers. And let us all know yeah, I was what gonna, the, uh, I was gonna the purchase say that, rates yeah, are. I was going to say that's going to need some kind of warning label. In fact, I'd like to come back to you on that. Everyone stay with us. We'll wrap things up with Scott Shepard after this. Scott Shepard is the director of the Free Enterprise Project, which is a project of the National Center for Public Policy Research. Free Enterprise Project's mission is to push back on woke corporate America and defend true capitalism and free markets. You can find out more about both of them by heading to nationalcenter.org, nationalcenter.org, and we'll put that on today's show page, which is 1405icebyradio.com. And so we're we're talking about this twin program idea of yours, and I think that's great, but, I, you know, it, it really is getting to the point with all of the problems that DEI is causing and now with genuine safety concerns here, it, it's almost like they need to have some kind of warning labels on, on, on these things. Are they hiring for race and gender over things like actual competence and, and talent? I mean, there someone is considering buying stock in Boeing one week and the next week doors and wheels are flying off. But I love your example of uh, the, the two airplanes. One has you know all DEI and the other one does not. And let's see who, who people want to fly on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think some, uh, controlled experiment like that genuinely, uh, needs to be run. Mm. And then we all have to, uh, abide by, uh, the results because, um, there are, I keep being told by the left that there are a stack of 1200 studies showing that diversity on the, the sexist racist grounds improves company performance. None of those actually proves Uh, what they need to prove, which is to prove that forced diversity over merit uh, increases a company's um, uh, uh, profits because they can't show that because it's not true. What we need is a real world on the ground experiment um, and and see what purchasers and users actually think when faced with the choice. Yeah, it's I'm envisioning some kind of DEI sticker like that green Mr. Yuck sticker back in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> he slapped that on the That's l- right. on the side of the plane. <laughs> well, and you know, like in the 70s and 80s, uh, you had those union-made stickers, and by about 78, 79, 80, especially with cars, if you saw that union-made sticker, nope, that's yep. going to be a terrible product. Yep, yep, yep. So. so- 
So uh, there's been a rash of layoffs uh, lately. Uh, uh, most recently, UPS was uh, announced they're going to lay off 12,000 drivers uh, after striking a deal with the drivers union that raised their salary to 170,000 annually. So the union gets that boost and now 12,000 of them are getting laid off. Um, but it was kind of interesting because this happened in the wake of the Christmas season, which we were told was you know gangbusters. But the CEO said that 2023 was a unique and quite candidly difficult and disappointing year. We experienced declines in volume, revenue, and operating profits in all three of our business uh, segments. And I know that the fourth quarter there, I think they saw like a, I want to say a 7% uh, decline there in, in shipments and then 4% uh, internationally. So did this take you by surprise? Because as I said, allegedly the Christmas season was great for retail and we all know that Bidenomics has the economy roaring. So what's going on here, you think? Yeah, I mean, th there's so much gap between what people are experiencing in the world yes. and what the, the statistics are telling us that I think the statistics are broken beyond repair. Mm. I wasn't surprised by the, the layoffs, though, because unions do not protect workers. I, I could go on for an hour about the evils of, of uh, employee unions, but, mm. but it inevitably happens. You raise costs above productivity levels of employees, you have to let go employees. Yeah. And so, and the unions know that, and the, the heads of the unions don't represent their, their le line level workers in any real way anymore. The politics are 180% apart, 180 degrees apart. Oh yeah. And so predictable. Yeah. Well, you know, we know that the Bureau of Labor Statistics routinely lies. They are constantly correcting things that they said last month or the last quarter. And pretty much every bureau in the Biden administration lies. People are making business decisions based on those statistics. Why can they not be held responsible there and, and sued for putting out false information? Oh, because the government gets to make the laws and they make laws uh, protecting themselves from exactly the sort of tor torch that would ruin any business. Well, I would certainly love to see somebody finally hold them responsible. But like you say, they're the ones sitting on the laws. Uh, unfortunately, we are up against the clock here. Uh, Scott, well, thank you so much for your time. He, again, is with the Free Enterprise Project. You can find out more about them by heading to nationalcenter.org. Scott, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Carla. DEI is the worst kind of racism because it implies people of color must be incompetent, unskilled, untalented, and definitely not smart enough. And by extension, it implies white people are the skilled ones, the talented, and definitely smarter. Only a genuine racist could come up with such nonsense. And of all the many dumb ideas leftists have come up with, that is a grand prize winner of dumb ideas. As if you need evidence of just how dumb liberal ideas can be, Western Oregon University has announced plans to abolish D- and F grades for students. How dumb is that? Pretty dang stupid when you consider Western Oregon University used to be the leading college in Oregon for teachers. The people who are trying to get careers teaching kids can't pass classes, so they're lowering the bar. There are tons of things that can help people of all races succeed and thrive. Like school choice, for starters. Have you signed that ballot yet? But it is not about lowering the bar, lowering expectations, and then being surprised that things go off the rail. And those people you had such low expectations of live down to your expectations. People can thrive when they have the chance and see the opportunity. And there's no doubt Oregon needs help. It starts with driving these entitled, spoiled, self-centered, see racism and everything while being blind to their own hypocrisy and to the failure of their own policies. It starts with driving them out of office. Because as we say every week, the best information is you no good if you don't use it. Reagan, what do you think?
I do not believe in a faith that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a faith that will fall on us if we do nothing. It's more than a show. It's self-defense. The I Spy Radio Show.